Well, good morning, everyone. I trust you can hear me. And if there are any uh, um, problems with the audio, feel free to break in and let me know, Stephen. Um, as you can see, I'm not Keith Ganser. Uh, my uh, hair is a little whiter and thinner than his. Uh, Keith is uh, at the beginning of a vacation, although he is with us today um, and enjoying the service from the comfort of his own home. Uh, so, um, Keith, we want to wish you uh, a great um, holiday in uh, Pennsylvania and hope that you have a, a really good trip and a, and a safe uh, rest. This means that we're also taking a break from um, Keith's uh, series on the book of Hebrews. And over the next few weeks, there will be different preachers. I this week and Keith and um, Josiah next week. Uh, and this week I'll be preaching on uh, the ascension. And I want to refer you to uh, an outline that will come in, uh, in, that will appear on the screen in a moment. But first of all, I'd like to begin with prayer. And I pray a collect from the Methodist prayer book. Almighty God, whose blessed Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things, mercifully give us faith to perceive that, according to his promise, he abideth with his church on earth, even unto the end of the world, through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. So I invite you to follow along uh, with the, uh, the outline, and you can make uh, me smaller and it uh, larger um, if you're at all tech savvy. And so um, I begin. It was the 12th of April in 1961. A 27-year-old Russian Air Force test pilot became the first man ever to go into space, or at least the first man in modern times ever to go into space. Uh, those of you who are biblically literate might uh, observe that Enoch was probably the first space traveler uh, and Elisha to follow. But anyway, within the space age, um, Yuri Gagarin was the first man in space. He, um, the Russians beat the Americans on this occasion in the space race. The, uh, the orbit of Earth uh, lasted one hour and 48 minutes. Uh, but uh, there was troubling news that came as a result of the space race because Gagarin was said to have said uh, a bit of a jab against God. Um, the government being officially atheistic, uh, Gagarin, uh, we are told, said, I went up into space, but I didn't see God. Well, Nikita Khrushchev um, said similarly to the Central Committee, uh, why didn't you step on the brakes in front of God? Here is Gagarin who flew up to space and yet even he didn't see God anywhere. Well, that may have appeared troubling to uh, believers who uh, might have doubted their faith as a result of that. But um, W.A. Criswell, uh, the following Sunday, W.A. Criswell being the pastor of uh, First Baptist Church in Dallas, uh, being a good preacher, he addressed the event of the, uh, the week and said, well, we had the first orbit around space this week, and we're told by Gagarin, I went up into space, but I didn't encounter God. And then Criswell paused, and he said to the audience, let me tell you something. If that man had stepped out of his spacesuit 
he would have seen God. So thereby was a bit of a, a revival in uh, people's sense of reality. Uh, and of course, this is um, an introduction to the topic of the ascension. And um, I want to return to Gagarin at the end of the, uh, the sermon to uh, bring the rest of the story into, into perspective. But um, it is kind of a strange phenomenon when you think about it. Here is Jesus being lifted up in front of his disciples and uh, disappearing into a cloud. And for the modern mind, some of our kind of sensitivities about, um, you know, not knowing now that uh, there aren't angels playing uh, harps on clouds and uh, our modern sense of the world um, might make us to challenge the narrative, but there's no reason for that whatsoever, any more than uh, we need to take literally the idea that the sun went down last night. And as we'll notice from the book of Acts, Acts chapter one, um, it says that a cloud uh, came upon uh, Jesus. So this may be something like the transfiguration or something like um, Elijah. But in any case, the ascension is uh, a concrete reality that has been attested to most specifically by Luke and we are going to consider it this morning. One of the other strange things about uh, the, um, the ascension is uh, why it wasn't a sad occasion. Uh, the story is told of a, a young girl who was watching an Easter play being performed on stage. And uh, the last scene involved Jesus, uh, the character who was playing Jesus being raised up from the stage to disappear um, above the, uh, the ceiling of the staged area by kind of an invisible rope. And uh, her comment to her parents afterwards was, that was really sad to me. But it seems strange to us when we look at the, pair, at the narratives about um, the ascension, that uh, the disciples don't seem to have any remorse. They seem uh, to be filled with joy and they just go from, uh, from one thing to the next and don't really skip a beat. So that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at this morning as we come to look at this topic of the ascension. And as we do so, I might just uh, let you know that we're going to be a little uh, informal today. And I'm going to be doing more of a topical sermon on the ascension than uh, specifically looking at one particular text. Although Acts 1 uh, will be the beginning part of Acts chapter 1 will be uh, the main focus of our, um, of our time. So if you can uh, see the, um, uh, the, the outline, you'll know where we are uh, going. And uh, before we come to look at the topic for today, which I have titled um, The Ascension, How It Fits and Why It Matters, How It Fits and Why It Matters, The Ascension, I wanna just talk a bit about a, a little background um, image that will be important for us as we come to consider the ascension this morning. And that bit of background has to do with ancient conquest parades. Ancient conquest parades. Uh, in the ancient Near East, and also at the time of Christ in the Roman Empire, uh, when a king uh, took his army into war and defeated the enemy, when the king returned home, uh, there was a great celebration, uh, and often the captives, uh, the prisoners of war, uh, were kind of shamefully paraded uh, behind the king. 
the victorious um, army that uh, defeated the enemy under the uh, instruction of the king uh, was jubilant and uh, there was a parade that was held. And on the occasion of this parade, um, the spoils of the enemy were shared. Uh, their property was uh, possessed and, uh, and, and given away and uh, soldiers and others were rewarded. Now this is really the background to an image that we find in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, most specifically, when Paul talks about Christ having led a triumphal procession. But as we're going to see, when we come and look at the passages having to do with the ascension, uh, this image comes into play. And we'll see it in a moment when we come to take a look at these specific passages. Uh, one scholar says specifically about the Roman triumph, the Roman equivalent of this triumphal procession, the following. The Roman triumph was awarded by the Senate to honor a victorious general. The triumph was essentially an enormous parade through the heart of Rome. It was designed to display the glory of the Roman general and offer thanks to Jupiter for granting the victory. The festivities could last several days and the entire populace of Rome would turn out to view the spectacle. The city would be copiously adorned to embrace her conquering hero with incense wafting from every temple. Josephus, the Jewish historian and an eyewitness to one such triumph remarked, it's impossible to describe the multitude of the shows as they deserve and the magnificence of them all. Our scholar continues for a few more sentences and I continue to quote, the pageant included plunder taken from the enemy, the victorious soldiers and especially captured soldiers and leading officers of the enemy. The captives would be led before the chariot of the conquering general to the mockery and taunts of the onlookers. In recounting the events of this reign, Augustus boasted, I waged wars on land and on sea. In my triumphs, nine kings or children of kings were led before my chariot. The climax of the procession involved a sacrifice to the Roman gods and the execution of any eminent captives in the forum. In the forum. Well, this is normally taken to be sort of a background description to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, Paul writes, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So that's just a bit of background information, and you'll soon see why it is that, uh, that I have uh, drawn attention to it. Well, as I intimated previously, our sermon, our, 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 our talk this morning will be broken into two parts. The first has to do with how the ascension fits with other events in the Easter story overall. And the Easter story in this case includes the death of Jesus. So uh, there is a sequence of events uh, that um, uh, ends uh, penultimately uh, with Pentecost. But let me just underline them for you and um, you can see them if you enlarge them on the outline that has been provided. 
And I've marked with asterisks those uh, parts of this chronology that are going to be the most relevant for our discussion this morning. Well, first in our chronology is the death of Jesus. And then second is the burial involving descent to the place of the dead. And I'll come back to that in a second. The third, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. And the fourth is the period that we have just been going through in our church year, the 40-day continuance of Jesus as a resurrected person on earth. And then fifth, the topic, especially for our day, the ascension of Jesus, his physical departure from this earth to be with God in heaven. And then sixthly, the subject of Josiah's sermon next week will be on the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit was given to the church as has been articulated in Acts chapter two. So let's go back and take a look at that sequence for a moment. And my point in giving us the sequence is uh, partly for review to give us sort of a context of where we have been in the past several weeks. But also some of these events are closely related to the ascension of Jesus. If you look at the second item on the outline, uh, burial, it says the burial involved Jesus's descent, the opposite of ascension, Jesus's descent to the place of the dead. And those of you who have been part of the catechism class, where incidentally we talked about the ascension this morning, it just so happened that that was the part of the creed that we were dealing with. Um, we spoke a few weeks ago about the descent uh, to the place of um, the dead. And there we learned uh, that Jesus uh, descended to the realm of the dead. Um, now this wasn't hell per se, it was what was generally called uh, Sheol, or uh, Hades. And within Sheol, there were three compartments. Um, the zone where the righteous dwell in the bosom of Abraham, or in what is also called paradise. And this, by the way, is the zone that Jesus was referring to when he spoke to the thief on the cross, this very day you will be with me in paradise. So there's sort of a compartment in Sheol that is for the uh, wicked, another compartment for the righteous, and then another compartment, so it would seem for um, the, the fallen angels or those spiritual beings that were so disobedient that God prematurely shut them up in Sheol. Uh, people that we're told elsewhere in the Bible um, were uh, from the time of Noah. So, um, when we come to look at the passages pertaining to the ascension in a moment, we'll see that some of these passages actually talk about, um, um, that refer to the descent um, as sort of the, the, the first step in the ascent. Let me uh, give you an illustration if I may. Um, when I was uh, growing up, I used to uh, visit a friend's house and uh, this friend had a trampoline, one that was built into the ground. And uh, it was a, a very secure trampoline uh, and my friend and I would jump on the trampoline. And if you've ever jumped on a trampoline with another person, you'll notice that if the two of you happen to uh, go down together, uh, when you come up, um, as a result of that having gone down together, uh, you shoot way higher in the air than you ever did uh, previously. 
Um, and this is a little bit, I think, about what's going on uh, with the link between the descent of Jesus to the realm of the dead and his ascent into heaven. Um, it accentuates the power of the ascension. Um, when Jesus descended to the dead, this was not so much a time of uh, humiliation as it was the initial point of Jesus's ascension. So we have Jesus um, going to the realm of the dead and there, um, and there's some controversy about this, scholars uh, differ in their understanding of what the Bible talks about when it speaks about uh, Jesus uh, preaching to those imprisoned in the underworld and such. Um, but I think what we can say for sure is that uh, Jesus was not um, giving uh, the dead a second chance to be saved. Jesus was not in hell, uh, but that Jesus descended to the realm of the righteous dead to be with those who were, as it's called, in the bosom of Abraham or in paradise. And there he proclaimed to everyone in the realm of the dead, the fallen spirits, the righteous and the wicked, that he uh, had uh, triumphed over the grave. To the righteous, he was saying, uh, friends, your hope and expectation has now been fulfilled in my presence with you. To the unrighteous, he was saying, sorry, guys, you've been defeated. Uh, your fate has been sealed. And similarly to the fallen uh, spirits and such. So uh, scholars differ about this, but I agree with one scholar, Michael Bird, who says uh, the following. I understand them, that is uh, 1 Peter 3, 19 to 20 and 4, 6, which we'll look at in a minute, describing how Jesus went to the place of the dead. Uh, sorry, let me begin again. I understand them, that is those passages, describing how Jesus went to the place of the dead and declared his victory over the disobedient angels imprisoned there and reminded the wicked of the judgment to come. So this is all a little bit confusing. You might be wondering why the righteous were not in heaven, but of course, Jesus hadn't ascended into heaven. And uh, prior to the coming of Jesus and his resurrection, um, people before Christ's ascension uh, who were believers, um, it is commonly thought, and I agree with this understanding, lived in a region of Sheol where they were safe in the bosom of Abraham or in paradise, as it were. And they were waiting for the consummation. And of course, after Christ's resurrection and ascension, uh, believers, when they die, they go uh, to heaven to be with Jesus. But friends, part of the good news of the ascension of Jesus is that Jesus was the first one. He led a procession um, into heaven and uh, with him uh, came uh, the spirits of those who were in Sheol. Uh, I don't think there's anywhere specifically in scripture where that's specifically taught, but that's certainly the inference. And as we'll see by reviewing some passages in a moment, uh, we'll see that uh, when Jesus led that triumphal procession, it was also testimony to the fact that he had conquered uh, the fallen spirits, that he had triumphed over death, and that uh, he was marching gloriously back into the heavenly realm as a victor and as um, the conquering king. Um, and with that, uh, there came, as it were, um, uh, booty in a sense. And Paul in Ephesians compares that booty implicitly to the giving to believers of spiritual gifts. So this is a bit controversial, so let me just... Um, be clear about what it is that, uh, that I'm saying and what it is that I'm not saying about the descent of Jesus into the realm of the dead.
Yeah, there are a range of interpretations. Uh, thank you um, uh, very much, uh, Stephen. Well, um, it is correct that Jesus was dead in the same way that other real people are. Uh, that Jesus descended to the zone of the righteous dead. Uh, this was not hell. It was uh, a place of safekeeping in a, an area generally called Sheol. And that he proclaimed victory over death to all who were in Hades. This was to the righteous, a salvific confirmation. And to the wicked, it was um, an affirmation of their judgment. And when Jesus ascended, he's pictured as a conquering king behind which vanquished captives followed. And he ushered the faithful dead out of that realm into heaven to be with him and the father. And he made uh, a spectacle of um, the forces of evil, which he had conquered by his death. Um, and some of the incorrect uh, understandings would be that uh, when Jesus descended into hell, or when Jesus descended into the place of the dead, that he suffered hell's flames, that he emptied hell of its occupants, or that he gave the occupants of hell a second chance to be saved. Um, there is uh, very little, if any, scriptural support for those ideas. Okay, so I've uh, dwelt a little bit on that one because of the, uh, the sort of trampoline effect, as it were, um, that Jesus has entered all three realms, the realm of the underworld when he was resurrected and he spent his 40 days on earth. Um, he, he reigned um, as the risen Lord on earth and then he reigned um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the heavenly realms with his ascension. Okay, thank you, Stephen. And third, back to go to our outline, um, is uh, the uh, resurrection. Um, I won't say a lot about the resurrection because we've dealt on it over the Easter season, but um, no, we're, we're back on the, on the first page. Yeah. Uh, there we go near the top. Yes, that's good. Thank you. Um, here we have uh, proof of Christ's acceptance of God's acceptance of Jesus's sacrifice. Um, among many other things, the resurrection shows that Jesus did conquer death. Otherwise he would have remained dead. If he hadn't conquered sin, he would have remained dead in our sins. So Jesus's victory and his resurrection in that, in that uh, is, is, is a victory is what I'm saying. So then there's the 40 day continuance on earth. And um, this is what we're, uh, we're, we're told um, um, in, in, uh, in, in, in Acts. In Acts chapter one, verse two, or starting at, sorry, at verse three, it said that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So while we're doing our chronology, let's just notice some of the things that uh, went on during that 40 day period. Uh, you might wonder why Jesus hung around for 40 days. And actually, um, the reason can be inferred by a closer look at Acts chapter 1. And uh, we'll come and read again Acts chapter 1 in just a moment. But let me point out a few reasons uh, that we can infer from Scripture as to why Jesus was uh, remained on earth for 40 days. Well, one of them was to give commandments and instructions to his disciples. To give commandments and instructions to his disciples. 
one of those we know well. You remember that Jesus uh, said to his disciples, uh, wait until you have received power from on high. Don't think about venturing forth until you have been given the gift of the Father through the Holy Spirit, uh, namely uh, the Holy Spirit um, itself. Jesus also took time, so we learn from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 8, and also from um, Acts chapter um, 1, verse 3, that Jesus took the time to present proofs of his resurrection. The resurrection is so central to the Christian message that Jesus took the time to remove any doubt about the fact that he had been raised from the dead. And so Paul talks about uh, Jesus having been seen by over 500 people, some of whom were still alive at the time that Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians. And so uh, Jesus took the time to remove any doubt and to make absolutely certain in the minds of the apostles and the early church that he was resurrected. We see a wonderful picture of that at the end of Luke's gospel when uh, Jesus, for example, says, have you got anything to eat? So he, he uh, shows them that he's not a ghost by eating a fish. And then uh, one of the other things that we can infer about the 40-day continuance on earth is that Jesus clarified many misconceptions that um, the disciples had. You see, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, the disciples kind of um, uh, had a better understanding of what was going on uh, when Jesus talked about his death and resurrection prior to the event itself. Uh, the disciples didn't always get it, did they? But now that Jesus had been raised from the dead, he was able to say, look, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I was telling you about this beforehand, but now you can see the whole picture as it were. And I wanna take some time to clarify any misconceptions that you might have about primarily the kingdom of God. And we see an example of that very thing in Acts chapter one, uh, verse um, uh, six, uh, when um, the disciples are asking about the timing of the kingdom. We read in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? And Jesus clarifies that uh, it's not for you to know the answer to that, but this is what I do want you to know, that you are to be witnesses uh, to the ends of the earth and that you are to be witnesses uh, of me and about me once you receive power from on high in the form of the Holy Spirit. So we have the 40-day continuance on earth, and then we have Jesus's ascension. As I've already intimated briefly, Jesus's ascension was a proof of Christ's victory over Satan and his hosts. Um, it's testimony um, uh, through the witness of scripture that um, we're given a picture of Jesus triumphing over his enemies as he gloriously uh, marches into heaven. And we can infer as well at the same time that he was um, introducing um, believers uh, to the realm of heaven itself, um, where um, those who are dead in Christ now all reside. And it was um, a precursor to Pentecost. Uh, the ascension um, had to come before Pentecost um, itself. I won't say anything about Pentecost because um, that's coming next week. So my point, apart from this um, answer to the question, where does the ascension fit in? A, a point, in addition to it being simply a review, I want to suggest 
that the ascension continues a trajectory begun with two, Jesus' descent to the dead, and continuing with his resurrection. And now Jesus moves further up, as it were, and is received into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. The ascension is a prerequisite to Pentecost. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, maybe others are, but it doesn't seem to me, uh, at least uh, from what I've read and uh, what little I've looked into it, that there's a logical explanation as to why Pentecost came afterwards, apart from the fact that uh, there's this image uh, of, of, of booty and the giving of gifts after the triumphal king has returned. And of course, uh, we know that God empowers uh, people in his church to do his will when they are given gifts from the Holy Spirit. Um, and as we've seen, um, no doubt that those 40 days were preparing the disciples for the ascension. I think that's the reason why there's no regret on their part. Jesus had, had, uh, had taken the time to coach them and to explain to them what was going on. So that's the first part of our um, discussion this morning how the ascension fits into the big picture of Easter. And now let's take a look at the ascension itself. And as we do so, I have some key texts that are um, there on the outline. And I want to begin with the two that refer to the link with Christ's descent, which I've noted above. One of them is 1 Peter 3, and I've uh, joined verses 18 and 22 together. Um, so uh, just keep in mind that there's content in between those uh, ellipses dots that's important. But for our purposes, I think we do not do an injustice to the text by uh, reading just a portion of it. Christ being put to death, but made alive by the spirit, that spirit by whom he also went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that is, presumably, and there's, again, some question about this, but I believe it's in Hades. Um, Jesus Christ, who has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So there's this idea of the triumphal march into heaven uh, with the, uh, the shamed and the defeated uh, enemies of Jesus being shown for what they are, um, unrighteous, fraudulent and um, disobedient and having launched an assault upon the very um, character of God. So one of the passages relevant to the ascension then is 1 Peter 3, 18 and 22. And then perhaps the most explicit uh, in relation to the descent to the realm of the dead is Ephesians 4, verses 8 and 9, where it says, therefore it says, and here Paul is quoting from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Um, Paul in the context is talking about the ascent of Jesus into heaven in the context of um, believers receiving spiritual gifts uh, that empower them, enable them to do ministry. And there are uh, places in the Pauline material where we um, are given a, a partial list anyway of those spiritual gifts, the gift of encouragement, the gift of teaching, the gift of tongues, the gift of the interpretation of tongues, and so on. But Paul goes on in a little parenthetical statement in Ephesians 4 verse 9 and says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? 
again, some debate about whether this is actually a reference to Hades or not. Some scholars take it to be, he descended into the lower region, regions, namely earth, but um, I take it to mean a descent into Hades. And then Paul continues in verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So here's the idea of Jesus being triumphant uh, and authoritative and ruling over all three of those zones, the subterranean world, the world, and then heaven itself. Okay, next among the key passages, we come to those that were read earlier in the service. Um, Luke 24, 50 to 53. Uh, yeah, good, thanks, uh, thanks, uh, Stephen. And of course, Luke and Acts are two volumes of the same book. And so um, the end of volume one, Luke concludes with reference to the Ascension. And then at the beginning of volume two, the book of Acts, um, Luke rehearses what uh, had gone on before. So we have two references to the Ascension itself, one at the end of volume one, book of Luke, or the gospel of Luke, and another at the beginning of volume two, the book of Acts. And so in Luke 24, 50 to 53, we read, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Um, I put in italics um, in, the, in the outline, uh, and if you're not following the outline but looking in your Bibles, I'm talking about verse 50, 51 and 50. It, um, it says twice that Jesus blessed them. And so the ascension was an occasion of Jesus um, imparting favor upon his followers. Um, I think he had prepped them well enough to know that they were going to be better off, as it were, with the physical absence of Jesus and with the gift of the Spirit, uh, and that Jesus would still be present with them, um, that this was really a, an occasion of, uh, of joy and, uh, and favor. And so uh, we don't read anything about tears, remorse, but they worshiped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus blesses them. They go to the temple joyful and in worship, and they bless God. And then Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Now, when he had said these things, and those things were part of the teachings that he had given prior to his, his ascension, namely an indication about not focusing on when the kingdom would come, but rather what they should focus on, and that is waiting until the Holy Spirit came, uh, waiting until they had received power from on high, and then bearing witness to Jesus, beginning in Jerusalem, um, and then Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's the immediate context uh, leading up to verse 9. So when we, we read, now when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they looked gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, it literally says, and said again. You see, these are the same two uh, men dressed in white, presumably, who attended at the resurrection. And so here they are again on this momentous occasion, not the resurrection, but the ascension, saying uh, with a question, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is followed by uh, two more uh, passages, number five and six. There are many others, but I just want to focus on them. And they focus on the resurrection or on the ascension, sorry, as being an occasion when Jesus sat at the right hand of God. And I, I, I confess to having thought at times, maybe what you've thought, and that is that uh, Jesus is now on holidays. Um, he gets to sit at the right hand of, of God and, uh, you know, he can, he can, he can relax. But that's not the image at all. The image of being seated at the right hand of God is an image of authority and power. Um, he's occupying the chair at the right hand of God and uh, is being given that place as one of authority uh, and authorization to do as he wishes and to give commands as he wishes, which includes the Great Commission, by the way. Um, so uh, the idea of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is uh, not one of relaxation, but one of authority and power and administration and glory and dominion over not just heaven, but over earth and over the underworld as well. So Ephesians 1.20 reads that he, um, uh, that he worked, well, regarding the greatness of God's power among believers is what uh, is being mentioned before that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And then Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So again, we have... Jesus sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, um, ruling in union with the Father, um, at, the, at the right hand of the Father, um, and having equal authority uh, with the Father. Um, there are uh, residences with Psalm 110, which was read, and also with Daniel um, 7, where the Son of Man um, is, is, is seated. So, We've been talking about how the ascension fits in with different events in the Easter uh, um, time. And uh, the second question is, um, in what sense does it matter uh, and is it relevant to us? And I hope that already you've seen times uh, at various points in what I've been saying of moments of assurance from his, uh, from his ascension. Um, of authority, which is, uh, which is nice to know that Jesus has, and he has shared that authority with us in the Great Commission in Matthew. But I want to um, simply uh, note, um, I think I have, um, is it uh, eight items? Um, and then I will uh, conclude. So these are some key things that we can take away from the ascension. One is that it is a separation from Jesus but only in a sense. Of course, God is triune, and with the giving of the Holy Spirit, um, there is the giving of God, God's self. And if there was any doubt about the fact that we, we might be tempted to sort of bemoan the loss of Jesus, at the very end of the Great Commission in Matthew, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. And then in my outline, if you can see it, 
Uh, I also have uh, John 20, verse 17, and I got two question marks after this because I think it's really quite dubious, but I wanted to throw it out there anyway, just as a little bit of a tantalizer. And also because in our um, um, catechism class a few weeks ago, we had a question about why Jesus would say to Mary, um, stop clinging uh, to me uh, because I have not yet ascended. And it occurred to me, well, just to go to John 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, that is Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Well, that sounds like kind of a harsh comment, but I'm just thinking that maybe uh, Jesus is saying, don't cling to me because I haven't yet ascended to the father. In other words, um, once I have ascended to the father, there you can have intimate access to me in a way that you can't even now. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. Um, in a way, I suppose that, that, that the physical presence of Jesus himself was not. So it's a separation, yes, but only in one sense. And this is not a disembodied separation either. It's not that the spirit of Jesus remains with us. Uh, Jesus reigns on high. He is uh, reigning in, in physical human form. And so um, we still remain in solidarity with him through the gift of the spirit. And uh, we share uh, his human nature and we continue to be made in the image of God and all the more so after the incarnation. Secondly is the consummation. Uh, this is uh, the great consummation of the work of the incarnate son of God, the completion of the work of Christ in, in his physical body while on earth. And so uh, there's lots of attestation for this, and we can see it affirmed, for example, in Hebrews 1.3, which says, after making purification for sins, after having accomplished his mission on earth to bring salvation to the world, to die for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there's separation, though not really. Uh, there's consummation, absolutely. And thirdly, there is our implied commissioning. You see, the ascension of Christ has implications for us. This can be seen, for example, in one tiny little word that you might have noticed in the beginning of Acts chapter 1. Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theophilus, referring back to Luke, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. So in other words, I think what Luke is saying is that uh, the gospel of Luke is what Jesus about what Jesus began to do until he was taken up. And now the work of Jesus continues in the spirit, in the activities of the uh, apostles. And so with the ascension of Jesus, there is um, uh, not really a changing of guards. That's, that's just far too superficial and inaccurate an estimate. But I, th I think you know what I mean. There's a... Um, a transition that takes place whereby now we are empowered by Jesus. We are gifted by God with uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we now continue by the Spirit, the work of Jesus. And that is to bring the news of salvation to the ends of the earth. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was not referring to um, his mission. He was referring to his work of salvation. His mission continues in the life of the early church. So uh, there is our implied commissioning. And then there is Jesus's confirmation and his vindication. 
I've alluded to that already in the imagery of his uh, being a, a conquering king who ascends into heaven. Um, it's a homecoming uh, and it's a vindication and a confirmation of um, Jesus and his reality. It's a confirmation in another way as well, I suppose. And that would be, remember, Jesus often talked about how he came from heaven and he was going back to heaven. And so here is a confirmation that uh, Jesus is returning to the place from which he came. And what he said about himself is true. And then a whole sermon could rightly be given to this. It would be to his glorification. It is the homecoming of Jesus. And uh, it is an occasion when he's bestowed with uh, glory and honor. Paul puts it well in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, when it says, subsequent to Christ's humiliation through his death, um, Paul continues, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who were in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Ephesians 1.20 as well. Paul writes of, the, of uh, what God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then he goes on in verse 21 to say, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And then sixthly, it's an occasion of our anticipation. And this is because of what the two uh, men said to the disciples who witnessed the ascension. He will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So that picture of Jesus's departure is at the same time a reminder of his return in the same manner. Seventhly, and this is looking to Pentecost, and with this I shall come close to closing, um, is an empowerment. We are not left alone to do the work. Uh, in fact, Jesus said, don't go anywhere. <laughs> don't mess it up. Don't even try until Pentecost has come and you received power from on high. And that is uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit that allows us to continue the work of God uh, through the Holy Spirit. And that involves sharing the good news of Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension to uh, the whole world, beginning in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And then it involves um, also his blessing of us. Um, the ascension, my friends, is a blessing. And that's emphasized at the end of Luke, as I've said. Well, folks, that's been a bit of a whirlwind tour. There was a lot to cover there. And uh, I thought it would be important uh, with such a, a kind of a sweeping topical sermon to provide you with an outline. But uh, let me uh, conclude by returning to the first man in space. And Stephen, if you've got that little PowerPoint uh, picture there uh, in the, uh, the PowerPoint, that would be great. Uh, the one before this. There we go. Well, here is our friend, um, uh, Gagarin. And the, uh, the end of the story is that uh, Gagarin never said those things. He did not say, um, there I was up in space and I didn't see God. 
Khrushchev said that, and Khrushchev put those words into Gagarin's mouth because we are told uh, through a book that was written about this whole event called 180 Minutes That Changed the World by Anton Pervushin, um, that uh, in fact, Gagarin was a believer. And uh, Pervushin, who was a friend of, of uh, Gagarin, uh, wanted to kind of vindicate Gagarin and not make him the atheistic bad guy that he seemed. And Pervushin writes, in fact, in fact, Gagarin should be remembered for completely different words. Pervushin continues, I always remember that Yuri Gagarin said, an astronaut cannot be suspended in space and not have God in his mind and his heart. Well, uh, Gagarin died in a plane crash on March the 27th, 1968, just shy of the seventh anniversary of that orbiting of space. His MiG-15 jet went into a tailspin because it had been um, almost brushed by another jet, which uh, turned his plane over in a backwash. But anyway, um, Gagarin's life went literally burning up in flames as he went crashing to the earth. Um, but um, if he truly was a believer, as it seems to be the case, uh, we will uh, see him uh, there uh, in heaven. And let's, as we close, remember uh, those words. Uh, I don't think they're absolutely true, uh, but they're a good cement sentiment. An astronaut cannot be suspended in space and not have God in his mind and in his heart. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.